Good evening. This is Peter Hammond in the studio for From the Front Line. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Numerous people have asked me to share my testimony of how I came to Christ and was called to missions to the persecuted church. Even before I was converted, I had determined not to reach the end of my life and look back in regret at what I could have done, should have done, might have done, would have done, but did not do. Growing up in Rhodesia, I heard many older people talking about what they would have done, could have done, should have done, were going to do, but never did. The conviction grew within me that it is far better to live life to the fullest than just to talk about it or watch others pretend to live it on the screen. As the Latin phrase declared, corpor diem, seize the day. For a young boy, it was most exciting to be brought up in a country at war. When we traveled on the dirt roads and strip roads, many of the national roads consist of two thin strips of tar. Many of the rural areas were endangered by landmines. In numerous parts of Rhodesia, travelers were required to travel in convoys with military and police escorts. On school outings in these areas, some of the school teachers carried machine guns. What I learned to love from the earliest years were books and animals. My parents taught me to love reading. We had many books in our home and visits to the library were a weekly outing. My mother taught me to read before I went to school. A man can never have too many books or cats. When I was five years old, my father came home with a young lion cub. The way I remember it, Juliet Prowse, the star who'd been involved in the film Dengarka, handed the lioness, after whom the film was named, to the hotel manager, my father, before flying overseas. My father, knowing my love for animals, and particularly lions, came home with this cute cub whom I named Vivian. This event made a tremendous impact upon me, and to this day I'm convinced that lions make the very best friends and pets. They're magnificent creatures. Lions are extremely affectionate. Living in large families called prides, they are the most gregarious of cats. Once I was accepted as part of Vivian's pride, we were inseparable best friends. I can still remember my amazement at how lively Vivian purred. It sounded like a motorbike engine. Her whole body vibrated and the bed seemed to shake when she expressed her contentment. Of course, lions are incredibly brave and very strong. Rolling around, wrestling and romping with the lion is exhilarating. And when she ambushed me, pouncing, I would be knocked on the ground even when she was only a cub. However, unfortunately, as Vivian continued to grow, the neighbours must have become nervous and perhaps they were afraid that Vivian would have had their poodle for breakfast. I was most distraught when Vivian had to be taken to Johannesburg Zoo. The people there were understanding and gave me a guided tour of the new lion enclosure, which included a moat and waterfall, rocks and trees. They assured me that Vivian would not be behind bars for long. I would have visiting rights. Well, before the lion enclosure was completed, I was regularly allowed to go and play with Vivian and a young leopard, Malcolm, who they were unsuccessfully trying to pair her off with. Well, Vivian knew the difference between a lion and a leopard, and she was not interested. Poor Malcolm. Every time he tried to get too friendly, he was rewarded with a tremendous smack across his face by a lion paw, and he went flying. On one of the occasions when I was visiting Vivian at the Johannesburg Zoo, I heard a little boy shouting out, Mommy, Mommy, the lion's eating a little boy. Well, actually, she was only licking me. 
I loved growing up in Rhodesia. There were so many wild animals around on farms, on the game reserves, and even just outside of town. On Saturdays, I would go to Centenary Park and feed the kudubuk. Some Saturdays, I remember walking out of town uh, to the Kami ruins. When I checked the map recently, I was surprised to notice it was 20 kilometers outside of Bulawayo. But my parents did not seem concerned about me wandering around and exploring, even outside of Bulawayo on my own. I remember seeing warthogs, kudu, giraffe, and other wildlife not far from the city during these adventures on my own on foot. They, they weren't in the game reserve, it was just beyond the city limits. Despite Rhodesia being a country at war at the time, crime was very low and most of our homes remained unlocked all the time. At that stage, we never had burglar bars, security gates, alarms, or any other security apparatus now considered essential. In fact, many people never even took the keys out of the ignition of their car, even when parked downtown on Saturday morning. An armed society is a polite society. I was very much of a loner and a bookworm going through school without making any particularly close friends, at least not amongst people. My best friends were my cats, Tim, Tiger, Mink, Prince and the Linus Vivian, of course. I enjoyed reading and had long since left behind children's books such as The Famous Five, The Secret Seven, other Enid Blyton books, The Animal Adventures and the Big Old Series before leaving primary school. By the age of 12, I was a member of the adult section of the Bulawayo Library, reading novels by Agatha Christie, Arthur Haley, Alistair MacLean, and history books by A.J.P. Taylor. On a number of occasions, the librarian looked at me quite severely and reminded me that these books were meant to be read. Yes, ma'am, I replied. I do read them. All of them, she challenged me. Yes, ma'am, I replied. She seemed sceptical that I could read four big history books in a week, but I did. Unlike my older brother, who was a people person, popular, endlessly surrounded by friends and rushing off to a never-ending series of social engagements, I was the quiet, introverted bookworm who was normally found reading a book or doing homework surrounded by my cats. Early on, my mother taught me a love for reading and for animals, particularly cats. I remember being taken to see a premiere screening of Born Free and meeting Joy Adamson, who signed a copy of a book for us. This and other books by Joy Adamson became some of my most prized possessions. I dreamed of becoming a game ranger, protecting animals and hunting down poachers. Major highlights in my childhood were going to the great game reserves such as Kruger National Park in South Africa, Atoshapan in southwest Africa, and Wanki in Rhodesia. At 12 years old, when I was in Standard 5, Grade 7, my school, Milton Junior, sent me on my first bush survival course to Mushendike in a game reserve near Lake Kyle. I thoroughly enjoyed the bush tracking and survival training with Game rangers, we were taught how to abseil off rocks, how to handle wild animals, how to survive in the bundu, what we call the wilderness. This involved handling snakes and kudu and climbing over huge rocks and going exploring in the dark and seeing sunrises and sunsets in the bush. It was all most exhilarating. I felt sorry for other children who were brought up in boring cities and safe countries like England and America. They were missing out on an adventure. Bush school was the highlight of any year. In 1972, I won the National Rhodes Award for Original Writing. Naturally, it was on animals. This was my first experience of being called onto the stage in front of an entire assembled school and parents to be handed my award amidst the floors. And the principal was beaming that a boy in his school had won this 
national award, I remember being most embarrassed and surprised about the whole matter. I was quite shy and did not particularly like all the attention. However, it was the first time that I remember somebody expressing an opinion that I had a gift for writing and should cultivate it. This led me to begin writing letters to the editor of the Bulawayo Chronicle concerning animal welfare against poaching and the need to drop stray cats. The Bulawayo Chronicle published some of these letters, including my age, 12, in the first letter. With most of the country being sparsely populated, much of the country was bush and wildlife was plentiful. Hunting was a major sport and a preoccupation for many Rhodesians, and many men seemed to be involved in hunting, and most of the children at school seemed to think that this was a wonderful idea. It did not take long for the other boys at school to recognise that I was different. While they thought hunting was great, I was consistently on the animal side. When they were obsessed with cars, I showed no interest. The schools were sports mad, but my mother, who was a nurse, always seemed to have a medical note excusing me from rugby and other contact sports. The only sport I participated in at school was really tennis and swimming. Thus, I was the target of teasing and bullying, and those who failed to fit in were invariably picked on by the bullies. I got into serious conflict during my first week of high school. The biology teacher at Milton High School decided to introduce his new students to dissection. The victims were scurrying around an empty fish tank on the teacher's table. Today, boys, the teacher beamed, you are going to dissect these mice. Who would like to put the gas pellets in the fish tank? I was horrified. These lively little mice were about to have their lives snuffed out in front of us, and then we expected to cut up their little bodies. My initial shock turned to anger as the boys started to shout out my name. Hammond, Hammond, he's a bunny hugger, shouted one. That's what they called animal lovers in Rhodesia, bunny huggers. The teacher seemed to like this idea of the resident animal lover being forced to be the executioner for these laboratory mice, so he ordered me to the front and placed the gas pellets in my hand. This was the first occasion I remember understanding what my father meant when he said that one could see red. A rising wave of anger filled me with a boldness that I'd not previously known. It seemed that the blood was covering my vision, and I did see red. Firmly seizing the sides of the fish tank, I turned it onto its side. Not noticing that there was a thick glass lid resting on the top, as I flung the tank on its side, the glass lid slid off the table and smashed on the floor. Twenty little white mice went scurrying off the table and onto the floor, and as the teacher rushed to capture these mice, mice, I turned to trip him and actually ended up kicking the teacher in the shins. With a shock, I came back to my senses, realizing what I was doing and wondered how on earth I'd managed to behave so badly as to, even if unintentionally, kick a teacher. Pandemonium reigned and it seemed like all of the students were screaming at the top of their lungs, some diving on the ground to capture little mice, getting cut in the process from the broken glass. As I was marched off to the deputy principal's office, I noted with some satisfaction that most of the mice seemed to have escaped into the quadrangle. This was some comfort as the deputy principal far exceeded the normal limit of six cuts with the bamboo cane. Six cuts was meant to be the limit, but I'm sure we went past 18. This incident did not bode well for my introduction to high school. Already having been identified as different, it now seemed that every gang of bullies in the school targeted the bunny hugger for special attention. The cuts from the caning by the deputy principal had not even started to wear off before 
they were eclipsed by cuts, bruises, grazes and gashes from the school bullies. The schools in Rhodesia were either all boys or all girls schools. Co-education does not seem to have been common in Rhodesia at that time. At least I don't know of any co-ed school that I was aware of at all. Bullying was a daily reality in my all-boys school. I was regularly tripped and pushed and elbowed and hit, and sometimes I had my head smashed into walls, and every visit to the cloakroom was dreaded as I would regularly be ambushed there. After one swimming instruction, the teacher had left and the boys would not let me out of the pool. They would slam their heels down on my fingers. As I tried to pull myself out of the pool, they kicked me in the head. I was mocked, sworn at, and spat at. And finally I had to retreat to the middle of the pool and wait for the school bell, which forced them all to head off to the next class. Naturally, I arrived late, so I was given detention. There was an iron cast, unwritten code of conduct in Rhodesian schools that you would never rat on a student. I did not particularly know what would have happened if I dared to do so. Perhaps I would have been even more trouble for showing disloyalty to another student. Certainly, it never crossed my mind that I could report any of these bullies, either to my parents or to the teachers, unthinkable. From the teacher's side, it appeared that they turned a blind eye to the incessant bullying. Perhaps they thought it would toughen us up as an essential preparation for real life. Things came to a head during one school assembly. A student in a row behind me stabbed me throughout the assembly with a surgical needle, an injection and needle. This was back in the 1970s, long before disposable plastic injections had become common. These glass syringes and metal needles were used repeatedly, sterilised between use. I can still remember the excruciating pain and feeling the blood trickling down my legs. At some point I felt like he had hit bone. Uh, yet so strong was the code of silence that the boy behind me knew he could stab me as often and as hard as he liked. I would make no sound. Neither would I report him. When the assembly eventually ended, we were ordered to turned to the right and file out, starting with the back row. Well, as the row behind me began to file out of the hall, I smoothly moved into that class line, directly behind my tormentor. We didn't have chairs in the hall, we sat on the floor, so it was very easy to just move into the other line. I was seeing red again, and as we stepped out of the hall into the brilliant sunlight, I tripped him. And as he tumbled down the stairs, I saw the large hypodermic needle and glass syringe in his hand. It looked big enough to be used on a horse. In two strides, I was right on top of him and brought my heel down on his hand so hard you could clearly hear the glass splinter into his hand just before his ear-piercing scream echoed throughout the courtyard. I kept walking, as did everyone else, just as he knew that he could torment me during assembly without me uttering a word. I knew that the same code would prevent him from reporting my reaction. In the same way, I was confident that none of the other boys would have seen a thing. However, I would have liked to have heard how he would explain what he is doing with a glass syringe or needle in his hand. This escalated the conflict at school. Bullies would pulverize me and I would catch individuals on their own and retaliate. To relate all the times that I was beaten would take a lot of time and become quite repetitive and tedious. My victories and reaction were far fewer, but that it give me some sense of grim satisfaction in resisting the bullies, even though I knew that they would take revenge and would make me suffer even more. I tripped one of the ringleaders down a long flight of stairs and accidentally dropped my suitcase in front of another particularly vindictive boy as he was running downhill for a bus. As he went flying, during physical education while running around the field, I managed to bump another one of the bullies into a cactus bush. 
In return, I got punched many times in the face, kicked in the back, tripped, pulverized by gangs. I had to get quite creative as to covering up the bruises and gashes so that my parents would not find out. At home, I resorted to the tactics my elder brother had taught me when we needed to cover up some wounds he had inflicted upon me during brotherly brawls, wearing a turban, military camouflage, bush hat pulled down low, frequently a scarf around my neck to cover up the kaleidoscope of bruises from being throttled. It did look a bit strange at the dinner table, but my parents didn't seem to question it. I seriously missed having my brother at high school. When I'd been at junior school, my brother, who was over four years older than me, was able to protect me somewhat during break times. Nobody bullies my brother except me. Well, now with my brother in the Rhodesian army and me in high school, I was very much on my own. So every day I gritted my teeth and braced myself for the next onslaught from the bullies. At one point, the battles at school evolved into shooting at one another with air rifles. Some of the boys would bring their pellet guns to school to shoot birds. Well, as I was the designated school animal lover who aspired to be a game ranger, I would borrow my father's air gun to defend the wildlife and I've no idea what the teachers were doing while we were slugging it out in the playgrounds and the school fields during break time, but I do remember at one point hiding behind a metal dustbin when I heard the distinct clang of one of the metal pellets penetrating the trash can and rattling around inside it. Evidently, some were using sharp pellets with a high-powered air rifle. I did wonder what would happen if one of those hit our eyes, but by God's grace, despite our best efforts to hit our adversaries with these air rifle pellets, no permanent injuries were incurred. However, great grief was caused when my backpack was hijacked and all of my exercise books were dumped in the urinal in the boys' toilets. As this was three-quarters of the way through the school year, I had a lot of homework to redo, almost all my written work for every subject. Over the years, I noticed that little bullies tend to grow up to become big bullies. The same mentality in school bullies is seen later in companies and governments. Unfortunately, all too often, we can also see such bullies in church councils as well. I discovered that bullies are cowards. As brutal and merciless as they can be in meeting out pain and suffering, often they craven cowards who cry out for mercy and grovel when outmaneuvered, cornered or caught alone without their gang. With hindsight, I can see how God prepared me for so much of my life's work and ministry by teaching me to stand up to intimidation and fight back. Even before reaching high school, I developed a deep-seated animosity for alcohol and its devastating effects. All too many people seem to spend their lives exercising the right arm, moving the beer mug from the bar counter up to their lips. I could not help noticing that the more alcohol they drank, the less sense they talked and the worse they behaved. It led me to become a lifelong teetotaler. It seemed like every single home in Rhodesia had a bar and uh, alcohol was part of my parents every evening. I also grew to loathe the smell of cigarette smoke. Long before I saw my parents crippled, and dying in the hospital intensive care wards from smoking-related diseases, I determined that I would never want to have something to do with such a teeth-staining, finger-staining, face-wrinkling, lung-corroding, dirty, smelly habit of smoking. I want to be healthy and not addicted to anything. It was 1974 when I first had the opportunity to see the famous Rhodesian Prime Minister, Ian Douglas Smith. My father ran the Bulawayo Club when he told me that the Prime Minister's coming to visit the day. I eagerly stood outside, waiting for a glimpse of this 
Heroic fighter pilot who had fought in the Second World War. Ian Smith had crashed in North Africa, been shot down over Italy, had survived five months behind enemy lines. Half his face had been reconstructed by plastic surgery as a result of his first crash. Now he was the courageous leader who was fighting for Western civilization in Africa, resisting communist aggression. My expectation had been to see some kind of police motorbike escort and a cavalcade of vehicles. But instead, down 8th Avenue came an old white Peugeot 404, outstepped Ian Smith. He was completely alone. There was no driver, no adjutant, no bodyguard or escort. Here was the Prime Minister of Rhodesia during a war, driving himself without any bodyguards or assistance. He stroked my cat, Tim, who was sitting on the wall, smiled at me, and he walked inside the Bulawayo Club. I was impressed. This was a real man, courageous in war, affectionate to animals, no to some young boy, and scornful of the need for any entourage. Eight years later, I was in the capital of Zimbabwe, Harare, when Robert Mugabe drove past eight police motorbike outriders, followed by a police car, followed by armoured stretch Mercedes with tinted and armoured windows, another police vehicle, trailed by a truck full of Zimbabwe National Army troops with heavy weapons, including rocket launchers, for goodness sakes. All traffic on both sides of the street had to stop while the convoy screened past, and anyone didn't sh- stop was shot. When I later met Ian Smith in 1986, I related these two experiences to him and asked him why it was that someone like him, who'd been described in the media as the most hated man in Africa, did not see the need for any security, whereas the popular leader of the revolution, Robert Mugabe, seemed to have to surround himself with layers of security. Ian Smith chuckled. I survived the Second World War. I fear God. What else do I need to fear? In the last 20 years of his life, I regularly met with Ian Smith and enjoyed meals and tea with him, and I I learned that he would regularly break the rules of his own government by travelling during the war years in areas endangered by ambushes on his own without an escort. He would frequently send all the staff at the Prime Minister's residence, Independence, away for the weekend, so there was not so much as a policeman at the open gate or a cook in the kitchen. Even during the escalating crime wave in Zimbabwe, when his neighbour, the Cuban ambassador, had his home surrounded by high razor wire, lights, dogs, heavy security, Ian Smith maintained the same low fence, same open gates, same open front door. He truly feared God alone. My father was English. He fought all six years of the Second World War in the 8th Army, in the Royal Artillery, and mostly in North Africa and Italy under Field Marshal Montgomery. My dad served in the Royal Artillery as a bombardier, operating a 25-pounder. He was involved in the Battle of El Alamein, as was my grandmother on the other side. My mother was German, born in Berlin. Her grandfather had fought at the Battle of Tannenberg on the Eastern Front during the First World War. My mother survived the mass bombing raids of the Second World War. My mother was just six years old when, at the Berlin Circus on the night of the first British bombing raid, 25 August 1940, She was knocked to the ground and almost trampled by the stampede of people and animals seeking to escape the explosions. My mother told me of how she would sometimes go out after bombing raids and collect pieces of shrapnel. Sometimes she saw the flares coming down, which she called Christmas trees. Green signal flares dropped by the lead bomber to guide the thousand Lancaster bomber aircraft as to where to offload their cargo of death and destruction. Each Lancaster bomber could take 14 tonnes of bombs and high explosives and incendiaries. Berlin was subjected to 363 air raids between 1940 and 1945 with over 68,000 tonnes of bombs dropped on the city by RAF and USAAF 
bombers. Because of the bombings, my mother's family, the Lindemans, moved to Minden, where they endured further bombings. I remember my dad telling me how he had been walking across the military parade ground in England when the German Heinkel 111 bombers had flown overhead. He had dived flat in the ground, pushed his helmet back in order to cover his neck when he saw his barracks in front of him blown into splinters. And what went up came pummeling down. I was very young at the time, but I particularly remember my grandfather's visit. My mother's father had served as an officer in the Africa Corps under Field Marshal Urban Rommel. My brother and I were somewhat nervous over what would happen when Dad and Granddad met because we knew they'd fought one another in the Second World War. I think we had some idea that there might be a war breaking out in the lounge. Well, my dad and grandfather, when they met, they embraced warmly. They reminisced about World War II, North African Desert Campaign, where they'd fought one another on opposite sides. One particularly memorable incident which they related was how on Christmas Eve they observed a spontaneous ceasefire with the German and British forces singing Christmas carols to one another. On Christmas Day, they walked across no man's land and exchanged ration packs. They showed one of the photos of their families and they played soccer. Although my father was a patriotic Englishman, he had an extremely high respect for Field Marshal Erwin Rommel and the Africa Corps. He called them an honourable enemy and the North African desert campaigners the last gentleman's war. I remember on a number of occasions my father being quite agitated and angry over distortions in Hollywood films that depicted the German Africa Corps committing atrocities. Rubbish, he declared. The Africa Corps were gentlemen. No such atrocities ever happened in the North African campaign. This is absolute rubbish. It offended my father to see the enemy he so highly respected portrayed in such a dishonest light. While my father was fighting in the British Army, my mother was enduring further bombings in Minden. Finally, when their town was overrun by Allied forces, my mother was attacked and threatened by one of the looters, a Canadian soldier. It was the first time she had ever seen a black man, and he had a pin down the basement with a knife to her throat, demanding to know where the family jewels were. My mother was only 11 years old at the time, but she would not let him know anything. She believed that she would have been killed had not a Canadian officer come along and rescued her. She then witnessed the Canadian occupation forces carrying all their family crockery and breakable possessions up to the top floor just to be thrown down and smashed. Even the grand piano, which could not fit up the stairs, was hoisted to the rooftop just to be released and smashed on the ground. The home was then expropriated by the occupying forces. Along with her mother, aunt and her younger brother, mum was forced to trudge out into the snow with only what they could transport on a sled. For a long time they had to scrounge for scraps of food to survive and without a home in one of the harshest winters on record. At the end of the Second World War, my father chose to be demobilised to Rhodesia. There he was catering manager for the Victoria Falls Hotel. When the British royal family visited Rhodesia in 1947, he catered for the King of England and the royal family at the Victoria Falls Hotel. Dad mentioned it was one of the most serious honours of his life, the greatest honour of his life, but it's also one of the most terrifying, more intimidating than being bombed by the Africa Corps in North Africa. My dad married a South African nurse and they had a daughter, Vanessa, born in Salisbury. Tragically, my sister Vanessa came home from school one day to find her mother had died while suffering an epileptic seizure. My sister Vanessa is 10 years older than me. After schooling, my mother travelled to England her parents wanted her to become a translator, but she determined to train as a nurse. 
Two stories epitomised for me the fiery spirit of my mother. At customs in Dover, the officials demanded exorbitant customs duties on two wine bottles she had in her possession. As my mother could not afford to pay the customs, and as they wanted to confiscate them, she smashed the bottles on the floor in front of them and said, If I can't have them, neither can you. On another occasion, an extremely irate nurse attacked my mother, hitting her in her face and cursing her because she was German. My mother reached over, pulled a bone out of one of the skeletons used in nurses training and knocked her assailant over the head. During a nursing training, my mother won a National Hospital Award. And we have the photograph of her being presented with this by Harold Macmillan. This is the man who later became Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, famous for his winds of change speech. My mother met my father through her nursing. As my dad's father was dying, my father travelled up from Rhodesia for a last visit. It was after the death of his father that my dad met mum. Hotel managers seemed to move frequently, and so it was that my brother Derek was born in England, I was born in South Africa. I should have been born in Rhodesia like my sister. However, after a long boat trip from England, when disembarking in Cape Town Harbour, my father was warning my mother about the danger of pickpockets. Some well-dressed, polite gentleman bumped into him, apologised. My dad continued explaining how swiftly and unexpectedly these professional pickpockets could steal for you when he suddenly realised what had happened. He suddenly checked his pockets, found that their passports, checkbook, train tickets, money was all gone. So it was that I was born in St. Joseph's Hospital, now Vincent Pilotti, 21st January 1960 in Cape Town. I remember my mother as the life and soul of the party. My parents went to dances, fancy dress parties, they had friends around to play Monopoly, bridge or chess. Liquor flowed freely and everyone seemed to smoke. My dad often had his camera on hand and regularly guests and the family would be treated to slideshow presentations. He also very much liked his reel-to-reel tape recorder and would regularly surprise us by playing back a recording of a conversation we did not realise was being taped. One funny incident which shows how times have changed when my father and mother, and my mother was quite a lot younger than dad, arrived at a hotel in Lanesburg in the Karoo. The hotel manager insisted on seeing the marriage certificate and checking identifications before giving them a room. My brother and I had been left with friends in Cape Town during this trip, which my parents took on their own. My mother commented that most of the road between Cape Town and Johannesburg was gravel, and she would regularly have to get out to open and close the farm gates on what later became the N1, a national road. Many of the farms in Rhodesia were attacked by communist terrorists, and soon piles of sandbags grew outside farm house windows, grenade shields were placed over the bedroom windows, and as the communist terrorists, CTs or Charlie Tangos, increased their attacks on farms using Soviet and Red Chinese supplied grenades, landmines, RPG rockets and mortars, security around the farms tightened. One farm that I visited had survived a mortar bombardment and mass ground attack from a well-armed group of Zanu terrorists. The farm dogs had killed several of the assailants, and the farm and his wife managed to fight off the rest with their rifle and shotgun. Many of the farms originally had thatched roofs. Because of the very real danger of fire caused by mortar assaults and incendiary grenades, or even trace bullets fired from a distance, all the farmhouses with thatched roofs were eventually replaced with corrugated iron or tiles. Some of the boarding schools close to the Mozambique border were attacked by terrorists. One occasion, a high school student fought off an attack by well-armed ZANU terrorists with AK-47s using just his .22 rifle. The inhabitants in Umtali endured 
numerous artillery and rocket bombardments. School children had to die for cover on the way to school as 122mm rockets fired from Mozambique exploded around them. Some rural school children were kidnapped by Marxist terrorists and forced to cross the border into communist Mozambique, where they were forcibly indoctrinated and trained in huge guerrilla training bases. After the revolution in Portugal in 1974, Portuguese East Africa, Mozambique, was abandoned to the Marxist Filimo revolutionaries. The people of Mozambique were not even given an opportunity for an election, not even a referendum. They were just betrayed, and the entire eastern border of Rhodesia became hot. Red Chinese-backed ZANU terrorists of Robert Mugabe poured across the border. The small army of Rhodesia was outnumbered, but never outfought. While we in Rhodesia were under international sanctions, not even allowed to participate in the Olympics, not even the paraplegics Olympics, communist terrorists received generous quantities of aid not only from the Soviet Union and Red China, but also from the Organization of African Unity and the British Commonwealth. Even the World Council of Churches funded the Marxist terrorists of ZANU and ZAPU with church donations. So missionaries were being shot, bludgeoned and bayoneted and churchgoers were herded into church buildings to be burned alive by bloodthirsty terrorists who were funded by the World Council of Churches. My first high school history teacher, Mr. Rhys Davies, was also a member of Parliament. I asked him, how could he be a school teacher while also being a member of Parliament? We do not get paid for being members of Parliament, he explained. We need a real job as well. Mr. Rhys Davies was so knowledgeable about history and world events. He was without doubt my favourite teacher throughout all the schools I attended. Mr. Rhys Davies MP warned us during our first week in high school. Beware the victor's version. Wartime propaganda morphs into peacetime textbooks. There are ministries of propaganda who lie during wartime in order to demonize the enemy and to cover up or justify their own failings and flaws. There's never a ministry of truth to revise the textbooks or clear up the propaganda and sift truth from fiction. We know that the British are lying about us in Rhodesia now. Why would we trust anything they say about the Second World War or anything else in history? What he had said was quite shocking. Our school textbooks did indeed come from England. I'd found myself arguing in history class in primary school. It always seemed to me that the Boers were the good guys in the Anglo-Boer War and that we had been on the wrong side, attacking farmers for no good reason except to control the gold mines. This opened me up for more abuse from others who thought that I was being unpatriotic. It also sent me with greater determination to the local library to check out the books that would enable me to get to the bottom of all these contradictions between what the school textbooks say and what Hollywood films depict, and what the actual facts of the matter were. It also began to disturb me that, although my father had fought all six years for the British in the Second World War, here we were in Rhodesia, being treated like enemies by the British government and the rest of the Commonwealth. Was it not one for all and all for one? Where was the integrity in all this? While we were combating communism, why were our Western allies, alongside so many of our men had fought, why were they supporting enemies? and placing such harsh economic sanctions on us. Why could their sportsmen not even play matches with our people? After reading the th of the 300 Spartans of King Leonidas, who had held up the vast Persian army, the invaders at the Battle of Thermopylae, it seemed to me that we in Rhodesia were on the front line of the battle for freedom. We had to hold the line and to keep the enemy north of the Zambezi River for long enough for the rest of the Western world to wake up to the clear and present danger and the threat of communist terrorism. I eagerly looked forward to when I could finish my schooling, join the army and do my bit to combat communism.
On the 3rd of April 1977, I was converted to Christ. It happened at the Stirk Kinnikor Cinnamon Pines. My family had moved to Rhodesia, from Rhodesia to Cape Town. We were living in Pines just a few kilometers from where I'd been born. It was Sunday evening when I walked over to the local cinema, little realizing how dramatically that would change my life forever. At the time, commercial activity on Sunday was prohibited in South Africa by law. No cinemas were open in honor of the Lord's Day. The local Baptist church had hired out the cinema for an evangelistic rally. The guest speaker, Reverend Rex Matthew, preached a powerful message on what Christ had suffered for us. Jesus died for you. What have you ever done for him? I sat stunned and ashamed. I'd never done anything for God. My family was quite secular. We never attended church services, not even on Christmas days. Sunday school had never been part of my life. We did not even pray before meals. Like my father, I would have described myself as an agnostic. Now all the arguments I'd picked up over the years against God and against Christianity seemed awfully puny as I bowed before the creator of the universe. I could not question the existence of God. His presence was overwhelming. There was nothing I could say in my defense. I realized that I was lost. If I died that night, I knew I'd go into an eternity separated from God in hell. I was a selfish, self-centered, ungrateful creature. I'd never so much as thank God for the life he'd given me or for his many evidence of grace in my family's life. My mother had told me that there had been complications before I was born. My mother, who was a nurse, had made use of thalidomide tablets, which were prevalent in 1959 to counteract morning sickness and nausea. Children born to those who had used thalidomide were often severely deformed, frequently born without arms or legs. Even though abortion was illegal in South Africa at that time, my mother had been advised to have an abortion, and because of the revulsion and hysteria over so many severe deformities suffered by those affected by thalidomide, Abortions were not only being allowed in these cases, but encouraged. My mother told me that she could not bring herself to consider abortion. She had called for the hospital chaplain to pray for her baby. Although we were not a praying family, this story had made quite an impact on me. As I realized there was a higher power who had smiled on us and spared my life before I'd even taken my first breath. The guest speaker that night, Reverend Rex Matthew, declared, If God has preserved your life thus far, it is for a reason. As I sat in that cinema hearing the word of God, a whole host of other incidents came to my memory. I remembered being run over by a car just in front of our home when I was just five years old. My mother ran out, lifted the car and pulled me out from under it. I was rushed to the hospital where the doctor was amazed. Although plainly one of the tires had gone right over my chest, the tire tracks were clearly visible on my clothes, there was no injury. I remember the doctor declaring, God must have been looking after him. This is my first conscious recollection of the concept of God. The picture that I had in my mind was one of the Coldstream gods standing outside Buckingham Palace in London. He had a long white beard, but was dressed immaculately in a red soldier's uniform with a tall bearskin hat on his head with a rifle and bayonet fixed in his hands. The similarity between those two words, God and God, made me think of God as a soldier. He was plainly up in the clouds and had excellent vision because he could see me all the way down in Southern Africa. But somehow he had been able to intervene to save my life. This was my first concept of God. The preacher said, If God has preserved your life thus far, it is for a reason. I wondered what that reason could be. All the life-threatening experience that my parents had related to me came flooding back into my memory as well. 
What if God did not protect my mother and father while they were enduring the mass aerial bombardments of the Second World War? Both my parents had experienced people being blown up to the left and the right of them, yet they had not been harmed. For what purpose had God preserved their lives? There were also many incidents that my parents had mentioned of how lucky I'd been when I'd fallen deathly ill with a contagious disease on board HMS Pendennis Castle sailing between England and South Africa. The ship had wanted to put me off at the Canary Islands because I had a contagious disease. But again, my secular parents had asked for prayer from the minister on board and I'd been healed. My mother also mentioned when, as an adventurous little boy, I tried to cross a waterfall and was washed over. My mother said it was incredible I had not been killed or crippled in that and so many other incidents. Several times my mother said to me, you have more lives than a cat. Why had God preserved my life when I had not even acknowledged him? I would not even prayed to God before that night. I would never even thanked him for any of these incidents, which my parents had reminded me of throughout those years. In that cinema, on the 3rd of April, 1977, I felt myself bowing before the throne of Almighty God, guilty of disobeying his law, justly deserving to be condemned to an eternity in hell. I was overwhelmed with a sense of my own unworthiness and wickedness. There was no way that I could possibly deserve God's love, but I felt that this absolutely overwhelming compulsion was to stand up and to go forward and to make a public commitment of my life to Christ. The very least I could do was to thank God for all that he had done in Christ for me. They were singing, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me as I walked down the aisle, bowed in prayer in front of that cinnamon pines. One of the church deacons, Bill Parker, counseled me and explained the implications of what I was doing, and he led me in prayer. It was the most exhilarating experience. There could be no doubt whatsoever God was reaching down and putting life within me. I'd been deaf, dumb, blind, and dead in my trespasses and sins. For the very first time, my spiritual eyes were being opened. For the first time, I could consciously sense the presence of God. In fact, I was absolutely overwhelmed with a sense of the presence of God, His love, His mercy. I trembled before the holiness of God, the power of God, even as I reveled in the joy of knowing my sins were forgiven as a new creature in Christ. I wanted to jump and leap and shout and proclaim what God had done. This was a completely new experience for me with a German mother and an English father. We Anglo-Saxons do not particularly go into expressing emotion about anything. My bringing had been very much in the restrained, cool, calm and collected British tradition. But as I walked and skipped on my way home from the cinema that night, all kinds of emotions were bubbling within me and I could not restrain it. I was absolutely overwhelmed with the conviction. God had called me to a lifetime of service as a missionary. But what did I know about missions? The only missionary I'd ever heard of was David Livingston. That was from the history books. Of course, I had heard reports about missionaries being killed by communist terrorists in the war in Rhodesia. I wondered why anyone would do anything so stupid as to go into a war zone and present themselves as targets for bloodthirsty Marxist guerrillas. But now, on the night of my conversion, I was absolutely convinced God was commanding me to go and proclaim his gospel and to be dedicated for the rest of my life to serving and extending his kingdom. What was I to say at home? I could not wait to tell my parents what God had done for me. However, as I opened the door, I saw that someone had beaten me to it. A friend of the family who had been at the rally had rushed over to inform my incredulous parents that their son had gone forward at one of these Billy Graham things. Jeers and scorn greeted me. So, you've become a born-again Baptist like Jimmy Carter. Well, that really stung. 
as a patriotic Rhodesian, I despised everything that Jimmy Carter was doing in betraying our and so many other countries in the hands of Marxist revolutionaries. Just Jimmy Carter was the epitome of a hypocrite and a traitor. Shamefully, I lashed back with razor-sharp tongue, defending my conversion and dissociating from anything that Jimmy Carter stood for. Like my parents, I was an argumentative type and arose the challenge with characteristic verbal aggression. Later that night, for the first time in my life, as I bowed in prayer at the side of my bed, I was ashamed. That the very first witness I'd given to my parents had been to dishonor them and argue. How would I ever be able to be a Christian? I despaired at the sinful desire to justify myself, rising so quickly out of a heart of one who had, at that very hour, given his life to Christ. What kind of poor excuse for a Christian could I ever hope to be? Well, the next day at Pines High School, Mark Laprini, one of the boys from Pines Baptist Church who had been at the rally, came over and introduced himself to me. He told me of the Christian Union that met during break time. It was tremendous to join in the singing songs of praise to the Lord with others who love Jesus. I had no idea there were so many Christians at school. The next Sunday was Easter Sunday. The Leprini family from Pines Baptist Church came and collected me for morning worship. I'm so glad they did. As I was dreading having to go to church for the first time, I did not think people brought up in church-going families realize how intimidating it is for a secular person to enter a church building. No more would we think of going into an exclusive club where we were not members than to walk on our own into a church building. It was so very helpful and thoughtful of the Leprini family to have driven over to my home and taken me to a Sunday morning worship service for the first time. They didn't have to do it a second time. They couldn't keep me away after that. But, but the first time it was so important to be taken there by a church member. That first Sunday morning service was absolutely tremendous. I was astounded that I knew the hymns. We had sung these very same hymns in school assemblies in Rhodesia. Yet now, for the first time, I was understanding what I was singing. I marveled that for so many years I'd sung hymns that had been insensible to me. Yet now they were coming alive. I was no longer singing a hymn, but worshipping God in thanksgiving for the reality of what he was doing in my own experience. The guest speaker, Reverend Rex Matthew, proclaimed the resurrection of Christ. He described in great detail how on Easter Sunday in Moscow, in the Soviet Union, long lines of communists filed past the corpse of Vladimir Lenin to see their God. Lenin is dead. In fact, a full-time taxidermist was employed by the Communist Party of the Soviet Union to maintain the illusion of lifelikeness for this decaying corpse of Vladimir Lenin. Very little of his original body remains, apparently. Mostly the worshipping communists are only seeing plaster Paris, repairs for the nose, ears, etc., which had already fallen off. But there's absolutely no doubt Lenin's dead. However, on the other side of Red Square in Moscow, St. Basil's Cathedral, the Orthodox Church, has a ritual each Easter Sunday. The congregation walks around church exclaiming, Where is he? He is not here. Where is he? He is not here. Then the minister exclaims, Christ is risen. And the whole congregation responds, He is risen indeed. What a contrast between the dead ideology of communism and the resurrection power of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. When we sang that hymn, We serve a risen Saviour, I felt as though my heart would burst with joy and excitement for this tremendous truth of the gospel. Another hymn that I sang at that time continued to resound within my heart and mind. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Praise the Lord, no turning back. My pastor Reverend Doc Watson, started a new series on Pilgrim's Progress, which illustrated the adventure of discipleship that I was embarking on. 
I never missed a service, a Bible study, a prayer meeting, or an outreach. Doc Watson later testified that from the beginning, I harassed him for more teaching and for more opportunities to serve the Lord. Well, within two months of my conversion, I was working on a script union team for a holiday mission in Somerset West. We traveled there by train and walked to the Presbyterian church where we were accommodated. And every day we walked on foot to the Methodist church, which was the venue for the children's mission. Somerset West was a quiet, remote village then. Today it's quite a large and growing town. But during that outreach, I gave my first message, a missionary challenge at the local Presbyterian church in the evening service. Within a year, I was a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader. I'd initiated and stocked a track stand and ran the book table at Pines Baptist. I devoured Christian literature, attending every meeting, training course possible, whether on evangelism explosion, counseling, holiness conventions at the AEB, Glenville Bible College, or doing missions, door-to-door evangelism, placing the Gospel of John every home in Pines, track distribution on the streets, railway stations, ministering in old age homes, and other Christian service filled my days. One prayer I prayed over and over were the words of that chorus, Break me, melt me, mold me, fill me, spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. As a youth leader, I regularly organized outings for Friday nights, including hikes up Lion's Head, picnics at Lundudden Beach, walks in Newlands Forest, and other outdoor activities. We had debates, we had Bible studies, and I regularly challenged the teenagers on the need for repentance, restitution, full surrender, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and holiness. Frequently I could see the eyes rolling and the knowing glasses, glances passing between the click of the in crowd. These were the daughters of the church deacons, established church youth, who had grown up in a church and made no secret of the irritation with the direction I was trying to take the youth group. On a number of occasions, girls in the in click told me I did not belong at this church. My parents weren't Christians, I was a new convert. What made me think I could teach them anything? They'd been coming to church since they were babies. Well, it did not seem to me that they'd grown much spiritually since then. How could a new convert come to know more of the scripture in less than a year than some of these self-assured young people who'd been coming to church, Sunday school, and youth all their life? On one occasion, when I just read that passage in the Sermon on the Mount, where the Lord commands us, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother's anything against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. It's in Matthew 5. So I walked over to the homes of three of the individuals who I knew had something against me, to seek to be reconciled to them. The results were not particularly encouraging. One of the individuals concerned responded, you don't know anything, do you? You're not meant to actually do that. If you'd been in the church as long as we have, then you'd know that you're not actually meant to do what the Bible tells you to do. I often wondered why it was that the new convert was the one most excited about the teachings of Christ in the Bible and why so many established church people seem so bored and emotionally detached. Then I read in Luke 7, of the woman who anointed the feet of the Lord with perfume, wet his feet with her tears, dried them with her hair. To the disapproving Pharisee, Simon, Jesus told a parable of two men whose debts had been cancelled. One owed a large amount and the other only a small amount. Jesus asked, tell me therefore, which of them will love him more? The answer was, the one whom he has forgiven more. Jesus said, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. It would appear to me that as a new convert, From a secular background, my enthusiasm for the Lord was greater because I was conscious of having been forgiven so much. Shortly after my conversion to Christ in 1977, I wrote this poem. He became like us, that we might become like him. He was rejected, that we might be accepted. 
he was condemned, that we might be forgiven. He was punished, that we might be pardoned. He suffered, that we might be strengthened. He was whipped, that we might be healed. He was hated, that we might be loved. He was crucified, that we might be justified. He was tortured, that we might be comforted. He died, that we might live. He went to hell, that we might go to heaven. He endured what we deserve, that we might enjoy what only he deserves. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. My pastor, Doc Watson, at one time questioned why I was at every single event on the church calendar. He had counted I'd been at 12 separate events just in the previous week. This is not healthy. You should spend more time at home, he said. He commented that he'd never before had to speak to any church member about attending too many meetings. But I could not help it. It was all just so new, so exciting. I continued to participate in everything from the church prayer meeting, the men's meeting, the evangelism, counseling, training, of course, Sunday uh, services, Friday night youth, uh, Sunday school, both the morning and evening services at, uh, on Sundays, the church business meeting, anything else that was scheduled. Aside from the Baptist Women's Association, that's the only one I didn't attend, but I was there at the others. But it still wasn't enough. I signed up for the Evangelism Explosion Training Clinic under Reverend Roger Voke. I attended African Evangelistic Band Holiness Conventions at Glenbar Bible College in Constantia. Muslim Evangelism Seminars with Gerhard Niels and door-to-door outreaches in the Malay Quarter with Life Challenge Africa. As well as Script Union holiday missions and outreaches in different parts of Cape Town. And especially at railway stations and in townships. My adventure of discipleship had just begun and it would soon lead me across borders, rivers, deserts, jungles and mountains into over 40 countries and eight different wars. And this story is related in Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, which is a book over 440 pages, over 450-odd pictures and maps. And this book, available both hardcover and softcover, and as an e-book and as a print-on-demand, you can obtain if you go onto the Frontline Mission SA.org website or admin at christianlibertybooks.co.za. If you go onto the Christian Liberty Books or Frontline Fellowship websites, you'll find Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ and get the story of the last 40 years of working behind enemy lines for Christ. God bless and good night.